We just got done recording with Adam Campbell, and you'll hear that podcast coming up. But I'll tell you, I couldn't be more motivated about running than I am right now. And it's a good time to sign up for a race. You can even plan a runcation with the Under Armour Mountain Running Series that's coming up again this year. It's the second year. They go to three separate locations starting on July 14th in Copper Mountain, Colorado, then going on to Killington, Vermont, and Mount Bachelor, Oregon. They have many different distances. It's a running festival. You can take your whole family, your friends, uh, and you can register for this race and get a discount if you go to trailrunnernation.com, click on the Partners page, click on the banner, and you if you enter the code TRNATION20, you'll get 20% off your registration fee. Scott, we're talking about all kinds of distances, 5K, 10K, 25K, and even a 50K. Yep, so there's a race for everybody. Go to our partners page, click on the banner, and use the code TRNATION20. Scott, I have been doing it all wrong all along. I've been wearing liners in my shorts. Path Projects has made the best running gear now. They have the shorts, and they have the base layer liner. That's what you need. Um, One of our nation listeners entered the contest earlier, Matthew Monsman, and he got the kit. And this is what he says. He said, first, he likes the soft, smooth feel of the shorts. He likes the length. He says they're comfortable. They don't ride up and down like right. we've always said. And he says, I love, I love, I love the pockets. He says, I can wear these on the trail and have a place for the car keys, a place for gel, foods, and everything. So the T-shirts, they've got, they've got shorts, they've got, they've got liners, and they have hats. And they're giving those away right now. So don't forget when you're ordering the shorts to get the base liner. Otherwise, you're going to be... A little free. Tell us about the new contest. They can go to trailrunnernation.com, hit the partners page, the partners link, hit the banner for Path Projects, and enter away. Ladies and gentlemen, and boys and girls of the wide, worldwide ultra running community, you are listening to nothing less than the greatest trail running nation podcast on earth. It is the Trail Runner Nation podcast with me, a complete imposter here in London, England, and your two real hosts over there with a skeleton behind them very early morning in the studio. It's Scott and Dom. All right. Are we ready? Yeah. There's a bunch of, like, old brothel hookers, like, buried out here. But I know it's on the upper edge, and you guys have won a couple of awards, and I've never prepped for a podcast ever. Oh, that's what you're doing. Okay, we'll clear that up. That will, our, our, the, the group of the nation and podcast downloaders are very sophisticated. <laughs> they are. They're unlike any other group out there. They're tolerant. They, they uh, ignore our many imperfections, and they'll be able to substitute the word. No problem. <laughs> they will. All right. All right. Are we ready? Yeah. Welcome to another edition of Trail Runner Nation. Thanks for joining us. I'm Don Freeman. <laughs> I'm Scott War. I'm Bob Crowley. And today, we don't have just any ultra running girl. We have the ultra running girl, Stephanie Case. And she's joining us from Kabul, Afghanistan. Why do you say she's in Kabul, Afghanistan? Well, she's a human rights lawyer that travels all around the world. She works for the UN. She's lived in crazy places like Afghanistan and... New York. Uh, Kabul, uh, Kabul, uh, and and Gaza, pra- crazy places. Lived in tents, and uh, she's also a pretty amazing ultra runner. She's done some of the hardest ultras in the world, including UTMB. She's done the Gobi March. Uh, she's finished uh, the Tour de Jantz three times. 
her second time. She was the second place female, Ooh. and she just got back from the 2018 Barclays, which I have heard was a suffer fest more than normal. more than usual. More than because the Barclays won this year. <laughs> Let, let's just start. Let's just start right there, Scott. I mean, because that's the elephant in the room, and then we have plenty of other places to go. But tell us a little bit about Barclays. What did you imagine going in? You write the letter to Laz, and you tell him that you really, really would love to suffer on his course. Um, what did you do to convince him? Not to you know tell us too many of your secrets. What did you do to convince him? And what did you think you were, was in store for you? <laughs> yeah. Thanks, guys. Um... You know, you never really know what Laz is looking for. There's so many people who are applying. Um, I tried to be, I tried to just show him through my application that I was uh, maybe not, you know, the fastest or the most elite, but um, I was someone that was willing to withstand a huge amount of suffering. Um, <laughs> and then uh, tried to kind of prove through my, through my application, um, how, how I've done that in the past. And yeah, I was really, I was expecting something really tough, but you know, you just don't know, you don't know what it's going to be like. You don't know in what ways you're really going to, to suffer and, and how much. Um, and I was just really terrified of, of becoming one of those Barkley stories. You know, there's a hundred percent self-extraction rate, Laz calls it, um, so far in, in the 30-plus years the Berkeley's been running. No one has had to be rescued, and I just, you know, my my ultimate goal, you know, my C goal, my D goal, my E goal was not to be um, in need of a helicopter out there. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad when, that when that's your goal. Additional pressure on you. Hey, yeah. Have you had it, I mean, you have to get out there with a map and a compass. I mean, were you experienced in navigation going into the race? Oh God, no, no, I really wasn't. I've never done an adventure race. I, um, that, that was really my biggest worry. And well, again, another one of my worries, you know, I ordered, um, a compass online and, and I asked for one for Christmas. <laughs> and of course my family picked, um, you know, the elite orienteers compass. It doesn't have any numbers on it. It just has symbols. I still don't know what they mean. Um, <laughs> and so, <laughs> so you're 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 a great orienteer. <laughs> packages. Huh? <laughs> I I had some help. There was um, the Berkeley is very popular over here with the French, and there was a a vet um, who was over here who organized a couple training weekends, and so we went out um, and and tried to do some orienteering at night with our compasses and, you know, in the snow, um, we all got lost. So that, that did make me feel a little bit better, but you know, there were a couple of days in the weeks leading up to the Berkeley where I was sitting at my desk at the UN, just kind of holding my compass, finding north, you know, walking up and down the hallway. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of the ultimate time management, but certainly I, I wasn't comfortable before I went in. And, and now I can say, uh, I feel very comfortable with the compass now. <laughs> So, so you, going in, out once he lights that cigarette and you guys head out there, how quickly did you your perception, uh, your your anticipation, or your perception of what the race was going to be and what it actually is? How how quickly did that change? How close were they? 
Uh, it changed pretty quickly. I mean, you're on what Laz calls candy ass trail for the beginning. <laughs> um, so you've got a, a climb up. Um, but then, you know, the, the beginning is quite hectic. Everyone's kind of trying to find their place and um, everything in the forest looks the same. And it can be quite dense in places. You don't think you would lose people, but uh, within a matter of, of minutes, suddenly everyone's gone. And, um, you know, we had it in our heads that we wanted to try to, to follow a veteran. Um, this is me and, and a friend of mine. And so you're trying to figure out who's done the race before and, and who hasn't. But, you know, even the veterans um, can quite easily get lost. And so we kind of took a wrong turn following someone right at the beginning. And it was a good lesson to us that actually you know, ultimately we really need to, to use our own maps and our own compasses. And if we find people who, who look like they know what they're doing, then, then we can follow them, but you can't rely on, on someone else entirely at all, or, um, you're not going to, you're not going to learn the course. You're not going to know where you are and, and you are subject to mistakes. You know, everyone has to try to check each other. So it was a good lesson to learn early on. And we ended up, um, following in line with a couple of guys, um, at least one of them was in their sixties, I think. And they were just super cool dudes. You know, they had hiking pants and a little fanny pack and they were just trucking it out there. Um, you know, they, they weren't fast, but their navigation was spot on. So, um, you know, it was a, it was a very good lesson early on to that we needed to be methodical, um, and not necessarily just run around like chickens with their heads cut off. That's a really good lesson to, you know, pay attention to those around you that have experience, but you can't rely on them. You have to rely on yourself. And, and, and That's the, a great lesson. And the first lap is a real learning lap. You know, you need, to, you need to be able to, you're fresh, your brain works, and you can see everything. It's not nighttime yet, so it's, you, you need to go to school on that first lap and not just follow somebody. Because I'd be a guy that was just looking for, I would follow somebody, uh, I would end up in another state. And, and I would just, I wouldn't even look up. I'd just look, watch their heels. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was, I think my biggest tip for someone really who would do the Barkley is um, it, you just, you have to try, you have to try to learn everything. You know, even when we were um, following veterans, we'd constantly be asking questions. You know, how do you know to turn here? What are you looking for? And then you have to look at things in reverse because you know you're going to be doing a reverse loop. And so you have to see what everything looks like behind you from the other direction. So you're constantly <laughs> looking in front, looking behind, looking in front, looking behind, and um, trying to see, okay, what am I going to remember in the daylight? What am I going to need to look for in the dark when I can't see anything? What if it's foggy? Um, you know, there's a billion factors, so you can't remember them all. But, you know, if, if a couple things stick, it's like throwing noodles against the wall. You know, you throw a pile of noodles against the wall and maybe you, a couple of them will stick and the rest will fall to the floor. But those couple of noodles might be the ones that, that really save you. Hey, Stephanie, I had a, as you were talking about this, it just entered my mind. Are you allowed to or do people, do some of the racers leave little breadcrumbs? I mean, oh. not, not not necessarily you know, taking survey tape and tape and, and wrapping it on a branch, but maybe taking a rock and putting it in a place so that on your reverse trip, you can go, oh, yep. a confidence that, marker. Yeah. Can you do that or do people do that? Yeah. Well, one, I would think that would be pretty much expressly against the rules. Um, but two, there's just 
no way that would help you because <laughs> the chances of you coming up against that particular rock or that particular, you know, it's just, it's not going to happen. Um, I mean, maybe if you had, you know, bright yellow reflective tape, that would definitely be against the rules, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's just not going to help you out there. You need to, you need to know the topography. You need to know your, um, your compass bearings, um, big landmarks, that kind of stuff will help you. Not necessarily, um, you know, if it was a marked trail, um, you might be able to draw a little arrow in, in the ground, but um, that's, that's never going to happen. You know, most everybody now is using GPS watches, and I would assume that those are forbidden on the course. So you're just using a regular watch? How, how, uh... Yeah, yeah. Laz gives you, um, so he sets the, he buys these Timex watches, these cheap Timex watches, and sets them all to race time. And so you don't get the watches until after the conch blows, um, which, of course, signal, signals that there's one hour to race time. So um, everyone gets the same watch. It's set to race time, so zero or, or midnight is, is the start. Um, so, yeah, you, you don't even really know what time of day it is. I'm sure there's a way to figure it out on the watch, but mine broke during the first week. So, you know, I was, I was out there with, with nothing. I think it happened to Amelia Boone as well, one of the other competitors. Um, she came in after the first loop and said, you know, my, my watch broke, what do I do? And everyone just laughed. (laughs) You don't get a replacement. It's (laughs) have to to figure it out. (laughs) That's rough business. I mean, Timex are supposed, they're supposed to what, take a licking and keep Keep on ticking. I mean, they can't even survive Barclays. (laughs) If a Timex can't survive Barclays, I told you Barclay won. (laughs) Hey, Hey, Stephanie, what are one? It was waterproof and everything. I don't know. (laughs) What are one or the one or two of the big lessons learned from attempting Barclays this year? Yeah, again, um, the the common advice is is find a veteran, find a veteran, find a veteran. Um, And yes, I I agree with that to a certain extent, but but it's really, you know, know where you are on the map at all times, whether you are by yourself or, or with a veteran. Um, and if you're not sure, then, then take a moment to, to stop and pull out the map, read the instructions. You know, you, it, you might lose time, but um, if you don't know where you are or you don't at least have a sense of where you are, then you're going to lose hours, not five minutes. Um, so that's definitely one of them. And the other one, is, it's a good lesson that I learned for next time. Um, I really thought navigation was going to be my my biggest concern. Um, I didn't really think fitness would come into play that much because it just never really has in a race before. You know, I've gone into other big races, slightly undertrained, um, like Tour de Géant, and I still did way better than I expected. And so I thought, you know, fitness isn't going to be my limiting factor here. It's, it's just going to be the compass. And I was completely wrong. You know, <laughs> it was both. So um, it is deceivingly difficult and maybe that sounds stupid because everyone says how difficult it is but maybe I just got a bit arrogant you know coming from the Alps you know I I trade in the mountains and I thought oh you know none of the climbs are are that long it it can't really be that bad but it but it is um and you need to be moving quickly and um in the right direction but um I think fitness was was a much 
bigger issue than, than I expected. I feel good now. I mean, my, my legs feel good. I don't feel beat up the way that I have after other races, but that's simply because I, I timed out. Had I been able to push things a bit harder and, and go a bit faster, um, I definitely could have done better. So how many I mean, hours? It just gives you more of a margin of error, I think. How many hours were you out there on the course? I'm not sure exactly because, again, I, I didn't have a watch. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I think, I mean, I was definitely over 30 hours um, for two loops. The first loop I finished in 12.55. So that in order to to finish all five loops, you have to finish by 12 hours. But you can still keep going if you finish um, the first loop by 13.20. That allows you to aim for a fun run, which is three loops. So I finished in 12.55, had to do a very quick turnaround. Um, basically, I just, you know, my poor dad, he was crewing for me, and, and I just stripped off all my clothes and threw them on the ground while I was trying to eat some noodles and, and mashed potatoes. So I think he's probably scarred for life now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, the second loop, I must have been out there at maybe around 19 hours. Um, so I think it was around 30 how's my mouth yeah <laughs> it's good it's good by me was that the hardest thing you've ever done in your life you've done some tough tough races i mean if we took you and and checkboxed all the hard things that you've done you're standing alone not too many people have done everything you've done was that the hardest race you've ever entered <laughs> um i've been thinking about that um just trying to compare it's very hard to compare the Barkley to, to any other race physically, it was, I didn't suffer as much as I have in, in Tour de Jam, for example, um, which is a 205 mile race in the mountains at 330 kilometers with 24,000 meters of climbing. Um, and that's, that's simply because I, I timed out on the Barkley, you know, we're comparing 32 hours to 98 hours or 32 hours to hundred seven hours. Um, so that's, that's quite a big difference. Um, but mentally it's very tough. You know, when you're climbing up a super steep climb, you're exhausted, you don't have enough food and you don't even know if it's the right climb. And then you get to the top and you realize you're in, in the wrong spot or worse, you don't even know where you are. Um, I think that that's when things can get really mentally, mentally draining. Um, or, you know, when you know you're at the book and you know, you just, you know it and you, it's, it's right there. It's under a rock and you must be five or 10 feet away from it and you just can't find it. Uh, and the clock just keeps ticking. <laughs> you know, there isn't much, um, there isn't much you can compare that to. That's a level of frustration that I, I haven't experienced yet. So, yeah, I think mentally um, it was quite tough, but uh, I won't reach that point yet where it gets to become, you know, the, the worst, let's say, until until I start, you know, getting into the later loops. You know, Stephanie, we always say we learn something that makes us a little bit better from a race or, or a, an, a, an event of some kind. Did, did Barclays make you a better and tougher runner now, that, that experience? I think so. I mean, it's, you know, normally I go into races, I don't even look at the course profile. You know, I just kind of go and I follow the flags and, you know, I'm surprised whenever I hit a climb or a descent and, and it's great. <laughs> <laughs> but um, 
the I think the philosophy behind the Barkley, you know, it's just so appealing to me. You really it's it's you and the elements, you know, you and the course. And you have to become so self-reliant. You're not no one is out there coddling you. You know, if you if you get lost, there is no rescue. Our bids say on it, you know, help is not coming. <laughs> Laz handed out these little, um, at registration, he handed out these little emergency devices and there were these black cylinders with a red button on the end and it said, in case of emergency, press button. And he was very serious. He said, you know, this is for safety. You can only press this once. So, you know, be careful. And, you know, the first couple of us were thinking, wow, you know, that's that's quite progressive. And, and suddenly my worries about, you know, being lost in the forest, you know, injured without rescue disappeared. And I felt so comforted. And then you look closely at it and you realize that it's, it's completely fake. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it's just some gimmick he's given you. And, and it was a good um, reminder that when you go out there, you are, you are out there um, alone. You are, you can only rely on yourself um, to get back. And that, that changes how you, I think how you approach a race, um, you know, I've gone into so many other races and just completely redlined and in a way, the way those races are set up, it, it allows you to do that because you know, there's always a fallback and there's no fallback in the Berkeley. Um, so I, I think it's, it's made me, I hope it's made me come out a little bit smarter. Um, but also just, I have so much, I'm just, I'm in awe. I'm in awe of some of the veterans out there, um, especially the the more seasoned ones. You know, they they really get it, um, and they also some of them really took the time to to try to teach the course um, to some of the virgins, which I think I think is just such a great show of sportsmanship um, because it's not a competition between runners out there. It's just you, you and the terrain. So um, there's a pretty amazing sense of community. Well, we want to move on to a race that uh, Don and Bob uh, are running this year that you have a lot of experience at, and that's the Tour de Jeans. And I'm pronouncing it wrong. I've heard you say it a couple times. What is the correct <laughs> Italian pronunciation of this race, Stephanie? It's Tour de Jeans. Um, so it's, it's a French um, pronunciation, really, because Aosta Valley, where the, the race is being held, um, has a lot of French speakers in it. So a lot of the names um, actually sound French, not Italian. So it starts and ends in Cormayeur, which, again, sounds French. Um, so, yeah, it's, but you can call it TDG if that, if that makes it easier. I call it Tour de Giants. Yeah, well, <laughs> and I've been I've been reprimanded because I call it Tour de Giants. <laughs> but so that so, sounds good too. <laughs> so what what drew you to Tour de Giants? Close enough. Yeah, TDJ. It's, it's, it's in the middle. It's in the middle. Okay. You are almost there. You had the tour. The the D you had down. Perfect. <laughs> what drew you to TDG initially? for your first time? Yeah, for, for me, um, again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm certainly not fast out there, but the longer and the more gnarly the race, the better I seem to do, because I think I just, I just seem to like suffering (laughs) more than some 
Um, so the idea of a, of a 330 kilometer race or 200 miler, um, was quite appealing. Uh, but also, you know, I know there's a number of, um, 200 milers in the States, which maybe at some point I'll do, um, Candace's series, mm-hmm. but you know, in the Alps, it's, um, it just seemed to me to be quite a imposing and, and raw, um, type of environment, you know, just huge climbs, um, huge mountains, you know, you can have, um, 2000, there's a, a, a 2000 meter climb at, at one point during the race, or maybe more than that. Um, it, it just seemed to be one of the, the more tougher experiences, um, that you could probably put yourself through. There are longer races, um, certainly, but a race of that distance and with that amount of climb, that's still quite competitive, uh, was really, really appealing to me because I just, I didn't know. I didn't know if I, if my body could do that distance and I didn't know how I would fare. And for me, that's been the whole draw of ultra running since I started 10 years ago, just finding out what my limit is, what my body can do and and getting to that point, um, where you just don't know if you can go on. And I've always been in search of that. And I thought, TDG would be a good way to to keep looking for that that breaking point. Interesting. Um, I was reading or watching some videos uh, about you uh, this week, and remind me the the first year that you ran the TDG, you were living in Afghanistan. Was that right? And training in Afghanistan. I was living in Gaza, actually. Um, Yeah, I was their first entrant from Palestine. (laughs) So they let in, um, it's a lottery process to get in, but they save two spots per country, and it's based on where you live. Um, And so I applied from from Gaza. So I got an an automatic entry in. (laughs) Um, And... uh, yeah, my training, I mean, it, it was pretty terrible. Um, I was under the same rules that I am now here in Afghanistan. So you're not allowed to, to run outside or walk outside. Um, but unlike here in Kabul, uh, I had no, I wasn't living in a compound. I was just living in an apartment building. Um, you know, and there was uh, Hamas police uh, kind of guarding the front. And... So when you get dropped off by armored vehicle in your apartment, you've basically got the stairs to run up and down. Um, if I could get an armored vehicle to take me to one of the UN like, work compounds, um, they had treadmills, which was, which was quite good, um, and a small parking lot. So I would pull a tire that I named um, Tyrone. Uh, <laughs> pull Tyrone around the parking lot. Um, but it wasn't that big and you know the summer was really hot obviously and you know you can't wear shorts um because it's just not appropriate if people if people saw you wearing shorts even inside the compound so it made it pretty tough um I didn't get permission to drive my own armored vehicle until my second year there so that was after um after I'd already competed in tour so I really just had to rely on on other people who had um you know better access to vehicles just to even get to the gym and I thought about getting my own treadmill at home, but um, 
yeah, the equipment's pretty bad because you can't, a lot of things can't get into Gaza because um, of the blockade. And so they have these walking treadmills, which you can't actually run on. But then electricity was also a problem because we, um, we only had electricity for certain hours during the day um, because of the power outages. So there were all these kind of obstacles going against me. Um, so I showed up that year to tour just having no idea what was going to happen out there and, and if my body would be able to, to even get up any of these climbs, let alone do well. See, that, that blows my mind and, and teaches me a little bit about your personality where you're going to this gigantic <laughs> race. <laughs> and the only vertical climbing training that you have is on a treadmill or a stairwell that's or or, or a stairwell and and then you're going to go climb 24,000 meters of a vertical climb that is amazing Stephanie Well I'm I just feel like I I owe an apology to all of the kids that I was in cuz I remember there were a couple of nights where the power was off and so I was just running up and down the stairs with my head torch on and my hydration pack and a couple of the kids would come out in the hallways and, you know, I just must have looked like an alien. You know, they'd never seen anyone <laughs> doing something so ridiculous. They must have thought it was some kind of army invasion. But, um, <laughs> you know, you find, you just find ways, you just find ways to make it work. Um, you know, it's something that I learned when I first started working in, in areas of conflict. I moved to Afghanistan in 2012 and everyone told me, you know, you're going to have to give up running. You can't, you can't run there. And that was all the motivation I needed to just prove, prove them wrong. You know, if you have space, no matter how much it is, you can run. It just, it's just going to be a little bit more difficult and you just need to be a little bit more creative. But um, there's really very few, unless you're, you know, in prison, there are very few places where you can't find or make some kind of route um, and make something work. Mm. You Bob. know, it, interesting, just a little side note, and then Bob has a question for you. Uh, we found out that from Dylan Bowman from a recent podcast, he actually goes to San Quentin prison and teaches and no. coaches <laughs> inmates at the San Quentin prison. So even in prison, you can find places to so run. there Bob, you go. They they can wear shorts in prison though, Scott. <laughs> they can. <laughs> hey, Bob. So Stephanie, it sounds like risk is at the foundation of your life, whether it's your vocation <laughs> or your running. So, wondering, do you think there's a correlation between your chosen vocation, working in active conflict, and the fact that you're um, always seeking out the the most gnarly, not just ultras, but the most gnarly ultras in the world? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I don't think risk is added. I don't, I, I actually consider myself a risk adverse person, which might sound laughable, but um, I think I just, I don't like the idea of, you know, things being hard or difficult um, as being barriers to, to doing them. Um, you know, I've always, in terms of my work, I've always thought that everyone, everyone in the world has a place, has something to do, you know, whether it's being a doctor or being a shopkeeper or, you know, a lawyer, everyone's got, got their place. And, um, you know, I just thought if I was willing to go to places that maybe others weren't, 
then, then that was kind of my responsibility because if I didn't do that, um, then, then I'd be taking an easier job that maybe was not an easier job. I don't, I don't mean to, you know, put down, um, you know, jobs in, in normal places because those are hugely important. But I just thought it, if I was willing to, to go to places like Afghanistan or, or South Sudan or, or Gaza, then, then I should do that. And, and, and I would keep doing that until, until I couldn't anymore. Um, or until, you know, my, I felt that, that my role or, or my place in the world would change. And, um, yeah, I mean, I guess with my ultra running, it's, it's again, not about risk, but just about, you know, putting myself up to a challenge. And I think whether in, in work or in, in running, whenever we accomplish something or, or try something that we don't think we can do, um, we come out of it we come out of it better. We come out of it with um, knowledge and experience and it actually sometimes doesn't matter whether we succeed or whether we fail um, because both of those experiences are hugely, hugely valuable. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, when I first came to Afghanistan, I, I didn't know if I'd be able to handle it. When I moved to South Sudan, I was living in a tent in a camp for internally displaced people and I, I was terrified. <laughs> and, you know, when they, the helicopter dropped me off with my tent in the middle of a cattle field and, and I knew I wouldn't get picked up for a, a break for a number of months. Um, it was almost the same feeling I've gotten on the, on the start line of, of some of the, you know, the major races, just um, not panic, but just this intense feeling of, um, of almost inadequacy, you know, I'm not sure if I belong here. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. And, and I get that a lot. Um, but it usually, I try to tell myself that it's an indication that, um, that maybe I'm on, on the right track and that this is going to be a learning experience for me. And, um, I've never regretted anytime I've gone into an experience with that feeling at the beginning, whenever I get through it, I've always been glad I've done it. And so I, I try to keep that in mind. That's that's a great story and lesson for us about how ultra running can can complement one's uh, career or vocation and vice versa. And that's actually a follow up question, which is which came first for you? Was it your vocation that led you to ultra running, or ultra running that led you to your vocation? Uh, well, in time, um, in terms of the timeline, certainly the um, the desire to kind of work in, in other crazy places came first. That's kind of been embedded in me. Um, I think from the beginning, um, or to, you know, to do something that had a, a broader purpose in the world. Um, the sports stuff didn't really come until later. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't a sporty person in many ways. I still don't consider myself a sporty person because I've got zero coordination. Um, you know, if you saw the state of my knees, you would see they're just covered in scars because I can barely stay upright running. But um, I've got no eye-hand or eye-foot coordination <laughs> and terrible <laughs> balance. So <laughs> the, the running didn't come until um, until later. I didn't try my first ultra until after I graduated law school. Um, and I'd already kind of started working on a number of um, projects abroad much earlier. 
so yeah, I think they reinforce one another. Um, I think, I think the sports has definitely given me a ton more confidence um, and just more of a belief in myself that I can handle more than I think I can handle. And um, that I've definitely brought into, into my work life for sure. Stephanie, you said your dad was scarred for life when he saw you uh, stripped down at Barclays, but I, I, I've got to say from your lifestyle, he had already calloused. He, he, was, he was used to your antics. That was nothing for him. Oh, gosh. You know, they, they deserve an award. I really, I've, I've put them through the ringer. I mean, I, with the Warzone stuff, um, and then last year I got into a, a, a life-threatening situation in the mountains just through my, through my training. And it was pretty ironic because, you know, here I had spent, you know, over four years working in war zones and come out unscathed. And then I tried to take up a quote unquote normal life in um, working in Geneva. And on New Year's day last year, I had an accident that, um, yeah, I mean, I really, I, I almost didn't come out of it. Um, so that, <laughs> that I think, caused them a, a wee bit of stress as well. Okay. Um, but Is they're it, great. Are there any details you can share with us that uh, maybe aren't too personal? You barely came out of it. That leads us to think, yeah. well, what? What yeah. almost happened? Yeah, so I was out. Um, I just wanted to be in the, in the mountains on, on New Year's Eve, and um, I couldn't convince anyone to come with me. So... I just went on this, it was a, a very gentle snowshoeing trek up to uh, a refuge on the Italian side. It's on um, the UTMB course and, and quite near the, the TDG course and um, had a great night. And I got up super early in the next morning on New Year's Day um, and I was just going to run part of the UTMB course um, that I knew very, very well um, back to town. And the guides had said that the way was clear and um, I, I didn't really see, I didn't really think it was going to be risky. Um, I had my, my snowshoes and, um, you know, food and water and emergency blanket and, and my phone. Um, and I, I set off, but I lost the trail in the snow a bit and, and got a bit too high and got to a, a somewhat steep section. Um it didn't look that bad when I was on it, but I slipped and I wasn't able to, to stop myself. And then the train really dropped off. Um, and I just started tumbling head over feet, uh, for quite a ways. Um, it's about 40 meters. So I think that's the equivalent of maybe 11 or 12 stories, um, and hit a tree. Mm. And, Immediately when I, I hit the tree, uh, kind of right against my, my chest and everything started to go black and, and I had trouble breathing. Um, but, you know, I, I knew I needed to, to get off the tree <laughs> before I could do anything. So I had to keep sliding down a little bit um, until the ground got a bit more level. And then I kind of rolled over onto my side, onto my good side. And got out my phone, and um, you know, even though I had battery before I started, it it can really get zapped in the in the cold. Um, so my phone had already died 
twice on, on that run. And I had tried to warm it up um, by sticking it in my, in my sports bra um, to try to, to get the battery back up. Um, so I, luckily the tree hit me on the right side or I hit the tree on the right side and my phone was in the left side of my bra, which um, wow. is really the only thing that saved me. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I kind of went through my options lying there. I was by myself. I was in, you know, the middle of the Alps. There was no one around. Um, I, I was having trouble breathing, so I couldn't even scream, even if someone was close by. Um, and I knew if that phone didn't turn on, then, then that was it. And, and that, that I've never experienced before. Uh, <laughs> just knowing that, that everything you're seeing around you could be the last thing you're seeing. Um, so it was quite a sobering moment, <laughs> but I, I turned the phone on and, and it turned on, I didn't know how long it would stay on. And so I just, um, I was very focused on just getting a phone call out, giving my GPS coordinates. And I knew as soon as I did that, then, um, that I could pass out if I needed to, or I knew that, um, that then, you know, I, I'd, I'd probably be okay. So, um, so yeah, I got the call out, got my GPS coordinates out, um, and, you know, said I needed, I needed rescue, um, that I was having trouble breathing. It was still about half an hour before the helicopter came and then they couldn't find me. So it was another 10 minutes, um, of them circling around, which was just about the worst 10 minutes. Um, you know, hearing the helicopter kind of go away from you, <laughs> waiting for those helicopter blades to come back. Uh, was, was pretty stressful, but um, I was airlifted to the to the hospital, and um, I had six broken ribs, um, quite a severe liver laceration, and a collapsed lung. Um, so the biggest concern for me it was the breathing because when you can't breathe, it's it's very hard. You have to stay very calm and not panic so that you can just keep very shallow breaths, but it's very hard to do. But for the doctors, it was the, the, the liver laceration that was the worry because I had quite a lot of internal bleeding. Basically, you, I think your body has about five liters of blood, and I'd lost two to internal bleeding. Um, so it's something they had to, to monitor pretty closely. Yeah. Stephanie, that, I mean, Barclays is nothing. <laughs> you know, that, that is a, a, a tremendous story. And, and you're a problem solver by nature. I mean, that's your personality, obviously. You put yourself mm-hmm. in circumstances of the unknown. You love to act, you know, quick and on your feet. So you, you don't look at the profile. You just, whatever's in front of me is what I'm going to do. And, and uh, any, anyone, yeah. that, that, yeah. that type of personality and character helped in that situation. I think I just would have stayed on top of the tree and just hugged it for a while until I was until it got black. <laughs> so good for no, you. No, you you wouldn't have. I mean, I everyone acts differently. I think in those situations, and you don't know how you're going to act. Um, but it, there was just such a strong, um, very practical survival sense that just kicked in, and it was like you know, there's no time to to, to panic about this. It was just like this is what you need to do. And it was very logical. I mean, I, I, of course, you know, I had a really tough time afterwards, you know, trying to recover emotionally really from, from the accident. But in the moment it was, it was just very clear and calm actually. Um, and I, I think I would hope that that's, that that's just, an an instinct that we all have. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, that, that's a tremendous story. Um, I, I, it's, it's hard to do a follow-up after hearing a story like that. But, um, so, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Um, you know, we're familiar with American what races. What kind of do you use? No. <laughs> yeah. We're familiar with American races here because that's all we've run. Um, what can we expect to see different over in Europe? What's, what's going to be like a aha moment? Like, oh, I thought they had this. Where's my, where's my Oreo cookies? You know, what, what, what are we going to expect? <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, the, usually when Americans or Canadians come over to the Alps, and certainly this was my experience when I, when I did my first race in the Alps, um, was just being a little bit shocked by, by the climbs. Um, you know, you just, unless you're doing hard rock, um, most of the races in the States, just don't have that kind of terrain. Um, I find a lot of the races in the States to be just um, a lot more runnable. And over here, you really have to be good at hiking. Um, and so some of the speed goats have, um, have some difficulty coming over this side. I mean, hiking poles is a norm. Um, unless you're Killian, you know, you need to be, you need to be quite comfortable using hiking poles. Um, the aid stations, they, they're not like in the States, you know, you're not getting, um, pickle juice and M&Ms and, and grilled cheese sandwiches. Um, you're getting salami, cheese, bread, um, some soup, maybe some pasta. Uh, it's a little bit more basic, I think. Um, <clears throat> But it's food that's that's suited to the terrain, so so it tends to work. Um, yeah, I think those are just a few of the things that that stick out in my mind. So uh, you know, we're used to less you, hugs, less hugs, <laughs> less hugs. <laughs> uh, so we shouldn't go over there expecting hugs and hugging everybody. <laughs> they might pull us off the course. That's a that's a reason for disqualification too many hugs too much hugs um you know we're used to you know picking up some yeah. some trail food you know either something in a pack you know from cliff or from goo or from whomever and and going off uh do we need to pack our own salami or or uh bring our own goo um i mean yeah you you won't people i would like to say people don't really use goos um or gels as much over here because they're just they're not, I don't think they're, they're well suited to the kinds of races out here. Um, I tend to rely more on, on solid food. Um, maybe that's just me, but yeah, you tend to find more like real food at, at aid stations, um, rather than kind of the, the packaged or, or the, the processed stuff or the really sugary stuff. Right. You find like fatty, salty, um, things over here. Yeah. So speaking of food, I, I did watch uh, a video, um, I think it was your TED Talk, uh, which we'll link to this this uh, this <laughs> podcast, and you mentioned in your, I think it was your first uh, TDG, that you were having trouble with stomach issues, and you ended up relying on, get this Freeman, yeah, olive oil, drinking olive oil, uh-huh. and whipped cream. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that decision, Stephanie Case. Uh, Olive finger. oil and whipped cream? Where did you come up with well, that? So, uh, 
<laughs> I'm all about, you know, making changes on the fly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think one of the advantages I, I have is that I, I don't really go into races with plans. So if something goes wrong, it's fine. You know, I just, I just adapt. Um, I don't really get phased by things when they, when they go terribly wrong. Cause they usually do. Um, but yeah, I was having trouble chewing anything solid. I just, it would just make me immediately, you know, throw up or, or gag. And that went on for ages. I mean, I can't, I can't, it was definitely into the second day. And you know, when you can just smell, you know, your muscles just decomposing, <laughs> like that ketosis smell. I mean, it was just terrible. And when you can smell yourself, you know, there's, there's something wrong. So I just, I just tried thinking, okay, I, I can't chew, but I think I can still swallow. And I came up, it wasn't really an aid station. They had helicoptered in two guys in the middle of the mountain somewhere. So there was a helicopter, there was a little cube where you could go in if you were cold and they had um, some bread, some olive oil that presumably you were supposed to pour onto the bread and some cookies. And, um, and I just looked at it and I just had this aha moment where I thought, I'm just going to drink the olive oil. And so, you know, they had a little cup and I just filled it up and I drank two cups of olive oil, um, which just sounds disgusting, but to me, it would, it was just the quickest way to get in a massive amount of calories, um, without throwing up. And, And I kept it down and I was so happy with myself I mean I just you know it was like a pagan mud I was just you know, bouncing around running you know down um, down towards the valley just burping olive oil just incredibly pleased with myself and I, I called my parents who were crewing for me and I said you know you've, you've got to get anything that I can just just I that I don't have to too. And I said, can you get some ice cream? Can you get some whipped cream? Can you get, you know, anything that I can just swallow easily? And, and they got it. And I got down to the, the aid station a few hours later, and there was just a big gallon of ice cream and a can of whipped cream. And <laughs> so I just got in as much as I could and took the whipped cream with me. So, you know, as I was going up the next climb, every few minutes, I would just squirt some of the aerosol whipped cream into my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, it got me over the hump. And then after that, I could eat solid food again. So I think it worked out pretty well. <laughs> hey, Bob, what do you got? So, Stephanie, tell us about sleep at TGG. Um, how much? Where did yeah. you do it? You know, kind of what's the what's your strategy? Yeah, so the, I mean, actually, I think the, the studies say that you should try to sleep um, early on in the race rather than, you know, go until you completely crash. But that's, it, mentally, that's very hard to do. Um, and that's just not something that, that I can do. Um, because, you know, you're, for me, what I try to do is reduce the amount of time um, not running, obviously, but that means when I go to try to sleep, I want to fall asleep immediately. Um, because the more time you spend trying to fall asleep, the more stressed you get, and then the more time you're racing because the clock is, is still ticking. Um, so I I go the first uh, I go through the first day, the first night, and the second day. Um, 
and I usually try to make it to about the halfway mark. There's a, a refuge um, around 170K uh, that I, I try to get to before I take my first sleep. And um, in TDG, there's, um, there's checkpoints all the way through um, our aid stations, but there's something called a life space about every 50K. Um, so that's like every 30 miles. And there um, they bring, they transport, you know, your, your yellow bag, which is your bag of all your stuff for you. Um, and the life bases are really well equipped. They'll have beds. So a lot of people will plan to sleep in the life bases. For me, I try to avoid sleeping in the life bases um, at all costs because um, they're usually quite noisy. Um, they're in the valleys which means um, for me, again, uh, if I'm tired, you know, and you get into a death march climbing up a hill, I will be exhausted by the time I reach the top. Um, and so it's much easier for me to immediately fall asleep because my brain is already kind of shut off when I get to the top of a climb, so I can get to sleep pretty quickly. When I'm descending, you know, you have to look, you know, where your feet are going. Your brain is quite active. So for me, it takes a lot longer to calm my brain down and get to a sleep if I'm trying that um, in a valley. So my tips or my strategy um, are to really sleep in the refuges um, they also are quite good in the refuges about, um, waking you up. You can tell them, you know, wake me up in 90 minutes, wake me up in 60 minutes and they'll do that. Whereas in the life bases, you're on your own. You have to rely on your crew or, you know, your phone alarm to wake you up, which could go terribly wrong if, um, you know, if your battery dies. Um, so yeah, so I tried in, um, in the second year for, for TDG, I think out of the 98 hours, in total that I was racing, I only got about two and a half hours of sleep. Um, so I didn't sleep the first night. I slept about an, I think 80 minutes the second night. And then I got another 40 minutes sleep and another 30 minutes sleep. And I would try to time those sleeps between, you know, 11 PM and 3 AM. Cause that seemed to be, that would help break up the night. And it also seemed to be that time of day when your body just really is craving bed. Um, and, you know, when it was sunny and there was lots to look at and, and lots of noises around, I would just try to keep moving. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Hey, Stephanie, we've really appreciated uh, the knowledge that you've shared with us and, and the stories that you've shared with us. Um, tell us a little bit about um, Free to Run, Free to Run, the charity that uh, you have started. Yeah. Um, so... After living in Afghanistan the first time um, and really, you know, I was running under the worst conditions I'd probably ever run under, just doing loops inside a, an armed compound. It was actually through that experience that I realized, you know, how important um, running really was to, to my overall sanity um, and how integral it was to me as a person. You know, it was something that I just couldn't give up, um, you know, even though it was, it was difficult and, and challenging and, and not particularly enjoyable as an act um, to run around in circles, but it, it really showed me, um, yeah, how much I had learned um, through running, through sports and, and, and how much confidence it had taught me. And, and I just couldn't have imagined my life without it. And while I was here, I was 
um, I thought the best thing that I could do to kind of support um, women and girls here, because that's who I really wanted to to support in Afghanistan, because um, this is one of the worst places in the world to be a woman, um, given the restrictions that they face. I I raced three ultras while training in Afghanistan um, in support of a women's shelter. And I kind of, you know, patted myself on the back thinking, this is great, I've done such a good thing, but the, <laughs> the women at the shelter, you know, really didn't give a crap about the money I'd raised. They they wanted to do the running themselves. They didn't want to hear about my running. They wanted to um, to have those same opportunities. And it was it was a wake-up call for me because I think, you know, I'd made all these assumptions that I hadn't realized that, you know, maybe running was just a, a Western concept or it wouldn't be something that they'd be interested in or uh, maybe it was too dangerous. And they really challenged me to um, to flip that, to flip my own thinking. And I just realized if they, if they are the ones um, asking for these opportunities and they want to experience the same, same things that I just completely took for granted, then I need to try to find ways to make that happen. So, um, so yeah, in 2014, after my experience in South Sudan, I launched Free to Run, which um, is a charity that um, supports women and girls living in areas of conflict through sport. And it's really um, a holistic way of, of looking at sports. You know, we say we don't just do, do sports. We've got um, running and, and outdoor adventure, and um, we use that actually to teach important life skills, um, leadership, conflict mediation, um, and communication that they can use to transfer into their own lives um, to become leaders in their community. And uh, we've been operating in Afghanistan since 2014. We've also had a project in South Sudan. And we just started, um, just within the last month, a project in the DRC, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So, yeah, it's been, it's been pretty awesome. We had, um, we've had two ultramarathon teams from Afghanistan complete, compete in the 250-kilometer self-supported foot races. Um, through the Four Desert Series. We've had um, the first woman in Afghanistan to complete a marathon um, in country. That was in 2015. And then in subsequent years, those numbers grew to six and then 12. Um, and numbers in a, in a 10K race went from 50 to 100 to almost 200 this past year, um, which is quite cool. So we also built the first ice skating rink we've had a kayaking program um skiing program so yeah it's been it's been pretty cool do do you see any resistance from the culture there of of women you know breaking out and doing amazing things yeah well i mean um you know a lot of people think that you know it's it's just not a part of the culture in afghanistan for for women to do these things but it's it's really not true. I mean, before, um, before the Taliban came to existence before, you know, women were, they had a lot more, more freedoms. A lot of the restrictions that women are facing here, um, are kind of more of a recent phenomenon. Um, so yeah, certainly, certainly times, um, a lot of times people use religion really as an excuse. Um, 
to to justify um, harmful traditional practices or, or restrictions against women. Um, but you know, I'm not I'm not an Islamic expert, but at least from the people I've talked to and, and what I know, it's it's really not. There's nothing in Islam actually that um, that prevents or, or says that women shouldn't be doing these things. But you know, the women and girls they face these accusations that you know running is not Islamic, that they're prostitutes, that uh, you know they shouldn't be doing <laughs> shouldn't be doing these these activities, which is crazy. I mean. You know, running and, and prostitution are not related whatsoever. But <laughs> but here, um, that's certainly something that they face. But these women um, and the girls, they're, they're so strong. You know, I was concerned at the beginning that um, these activities would really put them at more risk. And, and they, told, they told me, you know, we face risk just by going to school, just by going to university. Um, you know, if we if we wait until there's no risk to do these things until the conflict is over, until there's no more Taliban, there's no more ISIS, we're going to be, you know, who knows how long we're waiting, you know, uh, generations are growing up in this country. Um, and we need to try to find a way, um, to help support them to, to live full and complete lives. And, um, they're just, they're so inspiring by what they're willing to take on and, and by what they're doing. And we're seeing positive changes to that. You know, the more that women are actually outdoors um, participating in in these kinds of outdoor activities, the more it actually changes the perception of the roles that women can and should play in society. Stephanie, you said that the women that you're working with are inspiring. We think you're inspiring. I mean, not only from your running and your survival with the tree and your taking challenges head on and being dropped off into a tent in the middle of a a middle of a, a, a field out there and not see anybody for a couple of months. Those are all inspiring. But what you're doing with this this community of women, also inspiring. What can we do as listeners, if we're motivated to say, I want to help somebody, I want to help Stephanie complete this mission she's on, what do we do or where do we go? Oh, thanks for asking. Um, so our website uh, for where you can get more information is www.freetorun.org. Um, and of course, anyone can email me uh, at Stephanie with a BH at freetorun.org. Um, but really, what I want to say is that we can, um, we, we need your help. And, and you can make a difference. You can really make an impact through your own running. You know, the majority of our donations come through individual runners just going out and doing a 10k, a 50k, a 100 mile, 100 mile or whatever it is, um, every little bit really helps us. And, you know, we're a small organization. I'm, I'm doing this, um, obviously pro bono. Um, I don't, I don't take a salary on this, but I do have um, a woman who, who works for us full time and, and a team of, of Afghans um, who keep this going. And um, we operate at low cost, but but there's still real cost out there, you know, just to get um, women and girls to practice. We need to organize transport to make sure that they can get there and back safely. Um, so all of these things add up and, um, and we really, we rely on the community of runners worldwide. You know, it's, it's one of those things where uh, every time you go out and, and lace up your shoes and go out to do a run, um, if you can use that, as an opportunity to help someone else on the other side of the world do the same thing and provide them that 
source of empowerment and that, um, that taste of freedom. I mean, that's, that's quite powerful. Um, so anyone who is at all inclined, um, please, please reach out. Uh, we can help provide support on how to set up fundraising pages and we can um, talk about specific projects if you want to fund something in particular. Um, but no amount is, is too small. That's great. T- take the first step and, and get on their social media channels, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Uh, go to the website, freetorun.org, and uh, get involved because we're, we're pretty lucky to be able to go out, lace up our shoes like Stephanie was saying, at a whim and, and go run. Uh, let's let's help share that feeling with the rest of the world. So, Stephanie, thank you for joining us. We really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, we're motivated. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to to seeing uh, seeing you guys um, out at TDG. We can't wait. <laughs> so go out and run, <laughs> Moss. <laughs> <laughs>